The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today, Neil Allen, is an author and coach who has devoted much of his life to the study of spiritual traditions, both ancient and modern. His new book is Shapes of Truth, Discover God Inside You. You can read an excerpt from the book in his essay, Asking Questions is Most of Compassion, posted on the Spirituality Health website, spiritualityhealth.com. Neil Allen, welcome to Essential Conversations. Hi, thank you for um, talking to me. You're welcome. <laughs> my pleasure. The book was really interesting. My only concern is there's so much in this book and we only have this limited amount of time. So uh, I want to get the heart of it across to people. And then the listeners are you know, all invited to get the book and dig into it yourselves. You know, all too often, I read a lot of books about God, or at least with God in the title. And all too often when I read a book about God, I discover pretty quickly that the author isn't going to define what is meant by the word God. The word sort of just hangs there like a blank slate on which the reader can project any idea about God that they may have. But your book is an exception, thankfully. I appreciate that. Your book explores 35 qualities of God that can be experienced by the reader because, and here's the I guess the great revelation of the book, they're inside of us. They, they, these 35 qualities of God reside within us. And of course, that's the subtitle, Discover God Inside Yourself. So 35 is a large number. In, in Judaism, we only have 13. <laughs> and I wrote a whole book on those. So there's no way that I can expect you to expound on all of these in this uh, short podcast. But if you could... Help the reader a little bit understand your idea of God, and then briefly talk about what you call the big five of these attributes, joy, strength, will, compassion, and power. Yeah, thank you. So first of all, when I talk about God, I'm not quite talking here about the overall God, the God that's outside you, inside you, that permeates everything that might be a pervasive unity, or it might be a guy with a beard up in the sky, or it might be all of that. What I write about and what I'm talking about is an ability that we have, that all of us seem to have, to notice and discover and retrieve Aspects of God that are particularly useful to us as human beings that are inside us in, this, in two senses. In one sense, they remind you that you are actually made of the same material as everything else and that it is imbued with God. And in another sense, they're actually inside your personal body as uh, conceptual objects that can be 
felt and seen as if they were good, broad sentences describing God, a bunch of sentences describing God's aspects inside you. But instead of being sentences or words, they're a vocabulary of simple geometric solid objects that have colors and smells and scents and things. And so where the book starts is this kind of unbelievable proposition that hidden in your body is a set of 35 divine objects that represent specific aspects of God. They can grant immediate and sustained relief from everyday suffering if you spend time discovering them. It's an approach that is useful in the sense that when you go in to discover a particular aspect of God, the way in is like in a lot of approaches to uh, a lot of religious and spiritual approaches, the way in is through noticing your own suffering. And there's going to be one of these objects of God that supports your ability to get out of that suffering. They're trippy and weird. It's as if uh, when you move into them, it's as if uh, by looking inside yourself, a little opening will show up, like a snow globe opening inside you and an object that might be an amber stone or a red sphere or a white pearl will suddenly come into view. And each of these objects has a meaning and has the same meaning for you as for me. So... One of my questions that I was reading the book is, and you just answered it, and the book answers it, that I'm going to see a white pearl and you're going to see a white pearl. And the meaning of the white pearl is the same for you as it is for me. And that made me think of, are we talking about something like Jungian archetypes? Is it, is there some, is it similar to that? You know, Jungian archetypes tend to relate like dreams do to our social beings and uh, how we relate to the world in storylines and in patterns of appropriate and inappropriate behavior. These are much more fundamental and simple than that. These don't form into, well, they can form into storylines, but they don't have to. So these are more like building blocks for everything from a Jungian archetypal story being told to myself to uh, a way of understanding what is meant purely by the words that are represented, these divine words that are represented. So the 35 objects and the 35 concepts that they relate to are all what a linguist would call abstract nouns of value. So they are words that abstract out an essence that can be known by human beings from the objects around us, including ourselves. They're words like strength and discrimination and will and truth and self and... Yeah, I've got I mean, passionate love and, <laughs> and universal love. I mean, there's so many... Right, and gratitude. All, okay. I, all of a sudden, yeah. But there are all these words, and each of them happens to represent a quality of life, a quality of the divine, a quality of you that sits on the good side of the polarity of good and bad or right and the right side of right and wrong. And what's interesting is in this entire set, and it, it appears to be a comprehensive set, it's not my discovery set, we can go into that, but in this entire set of divine objects, uh, none of them uh, represents evil or weakness, or the concepts that we have learned that are on the other side of 
ethical codes and moral codes and our sense of good and bad and right and wrong. So the indication that gives me is that we're rigged to the good, um, which is kind of nice to know. It's, it's basically saying you come into this world built for this world with compassion and empathy and strength and will and curiosity all built in without their opposites. And we learn their opposites through social restraints that are appropriate and that we need to learn. But we ourselves are made of the good stuff. So a couple of questions about, about how that works. So for example, well, I'll come back to the colors in a second, but just this notion that you know, we're built for the good stuff and we learn, we learn the bad. In the book, you talk about uh, the true form of these objects and the false form of the objects. So it's, this, it's your social constructs and things that cause the false view of these objects or, or, or that create the false form. How do we get from being born with all these positive things and then fall into the trap of the false? We have no say over that, right? We're told that we have to restrain our freedom uh, when we get to be five, six, seven years old. And the more we're told that, we're more we're, it's reinforced with frowns and with concepts of, if you don't do this, you're a bad person, or it would be much better for you to do this than that. And that's all necessary. That's all necessary for maturation. What we don't notice, though, is that the more that those layers of conformity are, are put on us, the farther and farther away we come from noticing that we actually have an innate capacity to make the right choice. We just haven't tapped it, and we don't know how to tap it. And in the meantime, we're learning a different way to operate in the world. So by the time we're you know, 15, 16, 17, we've learned most of the rules of the road that tell us this is good and this is bad. And we should be allowed to kind of operate where we have all of those rules sitting next to us as a good, strong ethical code. And we've, we've tried them out and they generally work for most people most of the time. And we know that. And we can trust ourselves that when necessary, we'll move over into the ethical code. But we could learn at that point also that as long as we have that hanging next to us, we can operate out of a different system most of the time. And most of the time, we can operate out of noticing that we are compassion, we are empathy, we are strength, we are will, we are power, already built in. And, and in particular, we are so simply these things that we can recognize them in other people. And the, the big difficulty in modern civilized life is that we distrust each other, and so we find it very difficult to move into empathy. And empathy says, I'm more interested in what is similar about you than I am in your differentiated identities. You know, if you ask most people, who are you? They'll give you all their roles. They'll say, I'm a lawyer, I'm a woman, I'm, I'm this race, I'm that ethnicity, I'm uh, somebody who likes ice cream, I'm this and that. And they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, that's who I am. And what they're really answering is a very different question, which is, what differentiates you from other people? If you ask, what is a wolf? People would say, a wolf is an animal that is fierce when in attack mode and was gentle when a puppy and all of these sorts of things. And we would all 
think, yeah, that's what a wolf is. But nobody would ever answer about themselves that same way. I am a being. I'm a large mammal. I am a large mammal that has a heart. I have, I'm a mammal that has a heart and ability to self-reflect and, and notice other people are similar to me and that sort of thing. And if we could get back to seeing how we are mostly undifferentiated from each other, then we wouldn't need the social restraints so much because if you see the other person as being just like you, right, they could be you, you are them in some sort of way, then you're not going to do the wrong thing. You're not going to beat them up. You're not going to steal their food. You know, you're going to share. When we're born into this world, we share, we learn how not to share, but then we don't go back and relearn how to share. And the book teaches a particular way, there are many ways to learn how to reshare, but this is one way that kind of goes to a, a way to, to discover a nice trippy sense of, wow, I am the, I am strength inside me. I thought I was somebody who had to go pretend to be strong. Okay, so we're born with these 35 divine objects in and of themselves. I, I don't know if perfect is the right word, but they're, 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 they're perfect. Let's just go with that for a second. And then just given the, the realities of being a baby and then a toddler and a child and an adolescent, all of that, you're formed by your, your family and your society until you, you sort of lose touch with these divine objects. And that's just baked into the cake. So then, then the question is something I, you know, some, some trauma brings you, like with all spiritual systems, something brings you um, around so that you really want to see if you can find some, some other way to be than the false sense of, of these 35 objects, just to stick with the language. What do you think, how would parenting change or, or how would society change if the society was rooted in the 35 divine objects in their true form if your parents weren't coming from the false form, if they, is there a way to be raised more true and to have a society that is more true? Or do we have to go through the distortions and then some of us uh, recognize them as distortions and, and want to get back to the, the core truth? Yeah, I wish there was an easy answer to that, Rami. I, it, it's... I end up taking a kind of dismal anthropological view, which is that once we moved out of fairly small tribal societies, we were stuck with living next door to strangers. And as long as we, you know, I live on a on a beautiful block on a beautiful street with very, um, uh, very charming people who who are good people, compassionate people, and uh, and we all have fences around our yards. Right. right. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. And I don't know that with the population of the world, there's any way around that problem. You know, Gandhi wanted to revert India to uh, a, uh, a, a new civilization of tiny villages because he recognized what the anthropologists recognize, which is when you get beyond 200 a, a group of 200 people and you have to live around more than 200 people, you're going to default to distrust. The rules that we learn as kids are designed to help us in a world where we default to distrust. 
We default to hierarchies. We default to people having to compete for things. We don't, tribal communities, really Stone Age tribal communities, the ones that still exist in this world, are, are just different. They, they don't do that. And they don't have to do that. And the people in a, in a Stone Age tribal community default to trust. I, you know, I think, I think this is individual work. I don't think we can take on civilization for this. But the good news about that is um, nobody has to be a better parent. Nobody has to be a better neighbor. Um, the point of, of doing this kind of work, and it requires repetitions, is I get to be a this kind of me. And, uh, you know, I don't care anymore whether other people are like me, whether other people are dislike me in this. I get to operate in the world um, with, it turns out that when I operate with freedom, I become more appropriate and more compassionate and more empathic. And just about everybody I know who's, who's, who's traveled down a serious spiritual path, that's true. They, they, they oddly end up um, really engaged in the world in a, in a new kind of relational way. I, it's fine to do it individually. I don't, I don't. I don't know how to change the world, though. It's, we distrust our neighbors. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I was just thinking while you were talking, something's got to drive you to make this shift if you yeah. can make the shift. Yeah. Some, some yeah. Th- and that, yeah. and that's unique to the individual. Yeah. I, I mean, I, co- I come back all the time to you know my my wife, who's the author Anne Lamott, is very engaged with uh, 12-step communities. And 12-step communities are probably of all the, and I've engaged with Buddhists and and odd new age groups and Hindu groups and all sorts of different kind of places where I've sat and gone into retreats or I've sat in worship with them or whatever. You want a spiritually magnificent group, just go to your local 12-step meeting on a Wednesday night in the basement of a church somewhere or a temple somewhere, and you are going to see the most spiritual people on earth. Why? Because they know the power of the dark night of the soul. They know that when you hit hopelessness and helplessness, everything can happen. And that, you know, it's a, it's a, the, the first line that Jesus came out of the gate uh, yelling to the world was, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is dark night of the soul stuff. Quit your beliefs, become a loser, and see what happens. Well, I, I, now, now we're switching into one of my passions, and I have to be careful not to go into 12-step, because I'm, I'm really, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, if anyone's listening and they go, oh, I'm going to check this out, you just can't go to a 12-step meeting. I mean, you have to check to see if it's an open meeting. and you just, oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. you just can't, just, yeah. unless you are an addict, then, yeah, you know, be our guest and, and go. But just really a side note, just because you, you brought it up, besides bringing up your wife, which I was going, no, I was not going to do, but okay. <laughs> um, but you, you mentioned, you know, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the, the dark night of the soul. I mean, all of Christianity, as I read the Christian story, is, um, I mean, the big turning point in Jesus' life is crucifixion. And the the ultimate dark night where he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" I mean, that's that's really being broken on the literal and the metaphoric cross. 
And, and unless you do that, there is no resurrection. So you have to hit this rock bottom. And that's what's going to drive you either, not necessarily to Christianity, but just to some, some other system that's gonna, that, that speaks to you. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. In, in your case, and I don't know how, how much of this um, influences your thinking, but it seems, and you mentioned this earlier when you said you didn't discover these things, you learned them. I'm assuming you learned them from um, A.H. Almas, the founder of the Diamond Approach. Is that fair? Yeah, that right? yes. Yeah, his... Um, that's his, uh, yeah, H. Almas is his pen name. Hamid, and he's, yeah, Hamid Ali. Hamid Ali. So the credit goes to Hamid, and, and he's a uh, spiritual master who has a, a very efficient, progressive path through the obstacles of the ego, which I went through. And so he does the part that gets a little bit mushy in a lot of spiritual traditions, the part of I've got to address my emotional difficulties and get them to move to the side and what ha- and that and that's part of what I have to do in order to have freedom. And he had developed a, a remarkable and very diligent and uh, progressive approach to that. Uh, but it's kind of a mystery school. And so what I noticed was, in the midst of that, he had discovered um, these objects inside. Now he's not Sufi. Um, he is. He was born in Kuwait to a Muslim family, but they weren't. They weren't Sufi. But five of these objects um, have been known since the 13th century to the Sufi, um, who call them the Latayef, and uh, they actually those five are particularly. And I know. Rami, you've been wanting me to talk about this for 20 minutes now, but those five are are particularly powerful and important because if you take those five aspects of yourself, and I'll go through them very quickly, but if you take those five aspects of yourself, you can kind of form through looking at which ones do you feel are strong and which ones do you feel you're weak in, you can kind of form a personality out of them. And what that means is that they represent the most essential activities that we need to have to relate to each other and work with each other as human beings. So the first one's called uh, curiosity. Second one's called strength. The third one's called will. The fourth one's called compassion. And the fifth one's called power. And the way to think about these, uh, curiosity always appears as a yellow object inside. It's how you start anything right? Anything you ever do, you start with curiosity. And the words for it are, oddly enough, I want. So curiosity is the little kid pulling the red thing that he doesn't even know the name is a ball up to his mouth and trying to chew on it. That's that's how we start everything. And then strength is red, and it really represents less muscle-bound strength, although sometimes it represents that, but more the kind of heartfelt ability to accurately discriminate things in the world. 
and come into the world and say, I can figure things out. I can do things. And then will is what it sounds like. Will is white. It, it's often felt in the spine, but it's also felt as a mountain, um, a white craggy mountain sitting in the bottom of your stomach will show up. And what will represents is I not only can do it, I'll finish it. I will do it. I will be steadfast in it. In, in other traditions, it's represented by a more common sense of free will. But in this tradition, it's more, I'm going to be steadfast in anything. Compassion, uh, we all know what compassion is, or we think we do, but it's actually a green brick in your heart. And it basically says uh, to the world, I am, in the sense of, I am just the same way you are. This is the I am that Ramana Maharshi, you know, uh, developed and other other mystics have developed as being, let's get away from our identities and who are you really? And once you notice, I think I, you know, I talked about this a little earlier, but once you notice who you are at heart, you're going to notice that everybody is just like you at heart. Compassion, by the way, is the love that rises in the presence of suffering. And it happens to be the strongest love that we notice in our relational life with other people because most people are suffering more and talking about their suffering more than they're in a bliss state and talking about their bliss state. And finally, the fifth, which is a much more subtle one and usually takes a while to retrieve and find and spend time with, is called power. And the odd thing about power, the sense of I know in some great knowing way, more a big consciousness knowing than I can figure out how to put an Ikea uh, Billy bookcase together. This is a bigger knowing, a knowing of wisdom. Is It's actually the exact same thing as peace. And it's just weird to discover something inside you that at first you think represents an ability to grok the world. And then you notice, wow, as soon as I grok the world, everything gets quiet. So how, you know, I was looking at all of these and, and I know that we're, the argument is that they exist in all of us. Did, did and, 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 and Almas was not a Sufi, but these big five are related to Sufism. Where do we get the shapes, like the, the green brick in your heart? Is the brick shape and the color, they're, they're not, as far as, I can, as far as I understand, these are not culturally conditioned, right? Yeah, this, as far as we yeah, can it, tell. Hamid and I looked into that. I got some sort of, you know, I, 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 he helped me with this book um, in, in the early stages. And in particular, there's a catalog in the back with all 35. So, First of all, there are these five, and then there are 30 more. The 30 others, Hamid discovered all of those. He is, he is solely responsible for discovering all of those. As far as we looked back through uh, everything that we could look through, did a lot of research. You'd think they might have something to do with the tree of life, but they really don't, or something to do with the chakras, but they don't. They, what's different about them than the systems that you might think they would be part of is they stand independently. They're not a system. They are building blocks for any system. They are so fundamental and so rooted and so simple that they don't kind of organize themselves into neat paths and neat shapes. No, they just, if you have an emotional suffering, go into the emotional suffering, 
once you're passed through the emotional suffering in a particular manner, then one of these shapes will show up. And it shows up for that emotional suffering and not for any other purpose. Until, by the way, you've done, you've learned about five or six of them, seven or eight of them, having done them over and over and over again, maybe seen them 30 times, 40 times. All of a sudden it dawns on my clients or the way it dawned on me, oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm more them. Maybe I'm more these things than I am my nagging, snarky thoughts that are running through my mind telling me to behave better. And in that way, it's it's similar to uh, self-inquiry from, from Ramana Maharshi. Uh, very much so, right. but very, right. yeah. yeah, but but a, a different kind of, so you don't have to spend 17 years in a cave, right? You can spend a couple of years <laughs> being precise and kind of being guided a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I, I want to let the listener know that I have no idea how much sense any of this is making. <laughs> I never know that when, when we're talking. But, uh, you know, you do go through, and this is, I just want the listener to know this, you do go through all 35 in uh, enough detail so they make sense. But more importantly, you can use a section of the book where you lay out how to do this with a friend, as you put it that you can actually um, experience what you're talking about in, your, in yourself. It's not, this is not an abstract book, though maybe the conversation sounds that way. It really is, as the subtitle says, a method for, or I'm saying a method, to discover God inside of you, to discover these 35 uh, divine objects inside of you. And the method isn't, I mean, it seemed to me, it wasn't complicated. You, you got to have a friend you trust. You got to have, you, got, you both have to be aware of the system you're working in. But it seems like it's something that most people could do. Is that your experience? It's very odd. Um, almost everybody can do this. And almost everybody, when they do it, they act like it was the most normal thing in the world. My most rationalistic friends who hate all things woo-woo and have no need for God or spirit. And I, I'm, you know, they're my, they were my people for many, many years. I'm fine with that. I don't have any problem with that, but I work with them. They see these and they come into these, the exact same way the most uh, spiritually advanced people come in. And, and I say advanced uh, precariously, by the way, I'm just pretending there's something like advanced spirituality, but at any rate, what anybody can do this and the biggest obstacle to it is people not trying, which is a very funny thing. A lot of people go out and say, oh, I'm not good at feeling into things, or I'm not good at seeing my body. Oh, I've tried doing things like that. The, the technique that I, um, that I developed and that, that's used, I, I, a lot of it I picked up, I think, from Hamid Ali in his, in his teachings. But the technique is um, so simple and so easy. The, the only complication is you need a friend. You, you can't do it yourself at first. And in fact, you never, a lot of people get the full use of it before they're able to do it themselves. They, you have to use a friend and do it with a friend over and over and over again before the, you have a real chance of being able to do it for yourself. It's, it's just the way we're wired. But the technique is, uh, uh, is, is really quite simple. It's a series of eight, eight or 10 questions that you ask the other person right in a row. 
Uh, and by asking those questions, almost every time a form is evoked. Yeah, it, it, I want to just underscore that. It is very doable. I mean, I, I only read it. I, I haven't done it with a friend. But um, you can see that it, you lay it out so that it can be done. And I love the fact that, you, that it's a friend you're, you're, yeah. going, you're, you're turning to and not you know, some, some spiritual master. And then you have to deal with all of their, their own craziness. So, <laughs> so yeah, this, this book is, it would be an interesting gift to give to a friend with whom you'd like to do this. Oh, that's nice. That, that's a, that, yeah, that's a very nice idea. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. I'm just trying to sell books here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, we're actually, we're over time, but I just want to ask you one other question. And since you already brought up your wife, Anne Lamont, mm. if she were on the show and I asked her and I said something like, so Anne, since uh, Neil's been doing this, what is the biggest change that you've noticed in him? So she's not here. I can't ask her, but can you, what do you, what do you think is the biggest change in you? Well, this was, I learned these in the course of uh, moving through the obstacles of my ego, and it was one of the big tools. And so I learned these in Hamida Ali's mystery school originally. And the biggest change in my life was an, uh, uh, an, a fundamental transformation in how I perceive myself. I just, I'm less than I used to be, and I um, operate in the world uh, without much purpose. And uh, mostly I just do the next thing that arrives. And I know that sounds unbelievable, but it's actually how I live. And I was a, you know, a corporate strategist and I was good at strategy and planning things. And uh, the biggest thing that came through that path that these were part of was um, my loss of planning. I have no idea. I, I fill my um, days with clients and uh, my calendar is always full. And I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not being coy when I say I don't quite understand how things get put into my calendar, even though I do it. I just kind of follow my nose now. And I prefer living my life following my nose. And I find that I'm closer to people. Excellent answer. Way better than what I was going to guess you might say. You know, when, and, and I am cognizant of the time, but when someone says I live without purpose, I know that there's got to be people listening going, what? No, what are you talking about? But it's very Taoist. It's very, in the Chinese, you know, way, wu, way, non-coercive action, being in the moment and doing what must be done. I, I think that's, that's such a phenomenal gift that this uh, practice offers. And uh, if, if you can attest that this is how it works, I, I just think that's, that's absolutely fantastic. Our guest today, Neil Allen, is the author of Shapes of Truth, Discover God Inside Yourself. His essay, Asking Questions is Most of Compassion, uh, is, excerpt, is an excerpt from the book, and you can read that excerpt online at spiritualityhealth.com. You can learn more about Neil's work on his website, shapesoftruth.com. Neil Allen, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rami, for letting me blab about this trippy stuff. 
You're welcome. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at SpiritHealthMag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcast.